Welcome to episode 276 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Before I get started, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast. Monkeys and Playbills is a bi-weekly musical theatre podcast where hosts Paul DeGurse and Gillian Willems examine Broadway musicals that close with under 100 performances. Come along on a deep dive of theatre history to discuss Broadway's biggest flops, hidden gems, and total disasters. You can check them out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating the podcast with five stars. If you're so inclined, you can also leave a review. Your ratings help new people find the show. And if you know someone that you think will like Stageworthy, tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I knew told me about them. And remember, you can find and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you want to support Stageworthy, consider dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Your support helps me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 276 episodes at stageworthypodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby, and my website is philrickaby.com. My guest this week is Cassie Davidson. Cassie is an emerging actor, indie producer, playwright, and theater educator. Currently, she is producing a series of radio horror plays called The Chilling Anthologies of Theater Foolscap. Look them up on Apple and Google Podcasts and on SoundCloud. Do you prefer Cassie Cassandra? Uh, Cassie's good. Oh, Cassie? okay. that's a whole thing. I like had an oh, identity okay. crisis at the end of school. I was like, am I Cassie or am I Cassandra? Like, I don't know. Because I like to my friends, to my family, I go by Cassie. But like my resume says Cassandra and like, like, what are those programs? I'm always like Cassandra. And I'm like, who am I? But we, we can go with Cassie. For this. That's a, that's, that is a tough question. That is like, like the decision to what name to use is like one of those, those things. For me, it was always easy because um, Phil was just a name that I used. I was never really formal. I'm not Philip unless I'm in trouble. So mm-hmm. that made it really easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could definitely see the issue. Well, I, I actually used to like poll people. I'd be like, what do you think? Like, should I do Cassie or Cassandra? And then like that actually made it worse because I got, of course, like all of the conflicting answers. Like, like anytime mm. I was like in a show and I was like, oh, this actor is so cool. Like they know what's up. I should ask them. They'd be like, oh, definitely this. And then I'd ask the next one and they'd be like, oh, definitely this. So I just, mm. I've not come to a conclusion on what the best professional name is. But that reminds me when I was a kid, I I was like determined that I would have a cool nickname, but everyone just called me Cassie. So I like kept trying out all of these nicknames. I was like, maybe this will catch on. Maybe this will catch on. But they never did. No one ever. I know your pain. I used to desperately want a nickname. 
like mm. so desperately. I wanted like a cool nickname. Also, not just when I was a kid, like into early adulthood. I was like, one of these days, somebody's going to give me a cool nickname. <laughs> and it never happened. The only one I've gotten organically is Grandma Cass. Why Grandma Cass? <laughs> so I, I did um, two different sets of post-secondary. So a lot of the student jobs that I would get over the summers, I was older than like all of the like fresh 18 year olds who had like just graduated high school. Mm -hmm. So I was working at a visitor center and everyone was like 18 and I was into my like mid twenties. So mm -hmm. I just, I got grandma Cass from that. You know, when I was, when I was uh, George Brown, George Brown, uh, I'd started just right out of high school. So I was like, 18 when I started mm -hmm. and there was uh, a woman in my class who'd gone back to school. She was 30. And I thought 30, you could go to theater school when you're 30. And also mm -hmm. she seemed so old to me at the time, you know, like, Oh wow. 30. That's so great. But also, mm -hmm. and now it's like 30 is so young. <laughs> Yeah, I well, I, so I went to George Brown too, as you know, um, and I had the same thing where, like, again, I had those 17, 18 year old mm. classmates, and I, I remember just seeing the gap in the life skills. Like, mm. I would be talking about, like, oh, yeah, and I just, like, you know, roasted a plate of vegetables last night, and they're like, what? You know how to use your oven? <laughs> what do you mean? I know how to use my oven. Yes, I do. So, yeah. It, it, it's an, always an interesting mix, I feel, mm. with the George Brown cohorts. Like, you get such a range of people. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And, and you know, when I was at George Brown, we, this, is, this predates long before the Young Center. We were over at the uh, – I spent all three years uh, on River Street, so oh. King and River at the, the old warehouse there. And um, it was like this – you know, since we were the only people in the building, it was like – like theater school, it was like, that was our world. Mm -hmm. um, and there were no distractions because also because River Street had nothing else. Like there was nothing in the neighborhood. Um, but it was very much, it was very interesting to be so uh, enclosed. Um, you know, at the Young Center, I know there's the, there, you know, you've got, you've got soul pepper and all mm -hmm. of that stuff. And, and it's the distillery and there's so much stuff going on. Uh, we had nothing going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like we... Often we like go out to grab a coffee on our break and we're like, oh, what's this festival? Oh, they're shooting a movie here. Oh, yes. what's this? <laughs> there one time yeah. there was an LCBO truck that was like giving out samples and we were like, hmm, is mm. this is this allowed? Should we? And they were like, no, no, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. But some some did. Some I'm did. Sure some did. hit up they that did. LCBO truck. <laughs> I, you know what? It, back in, in my day, I know exactly who most of the people were, and there was most of the people in my class who probably would have gone to the LCBO track, mm -hmm. but, you know, fortunately we didn't have that, that distraction. Now, <laughs> before you, you went to George Brown after going to Guelph, is that right? Yes. Yes, that is correct. And you were studying theater at Guelph or you were studying yeah. something else at Guelph? Yeah, I did theater studies. So I did my like undergrad in theater studies. Um, it's actually, it's a little ridiculous how I ended up at Guelph because both of my parents did theater studies at Guelph. They both lived in the Arts House residence at Guelph, which I also lived in. And they like met in the program and like blah, blah, blah. I was so determined. I was like, I will not go to Guelph. I will not do that. And where did I do? I go to Guelph. And then also I met my partner, Ryan, 
who I've been with for eight years mm. in Arts House at Guelph. So like it's it's a little crazy how like no matter what you swear, I will not do that. You just <laughs> doing it anyway. It's funny because people say never say never, and it actually is a true thing. Like you mm -hmm. can't ever know. Mm -hmm. um, having gone through the program at Guelph, mm -hmm. um, just out of curiosity, what was it that made you want to go back to school to study theater again? Mm -hmm. Okay. This was also the source of great strife at the time. <laughs> I, I call that my quarter life crisis. Um, mm. So basically, Guelph was really, really, really amazing in that it let me try a tiny bit of everything. Like I got directing, I got dramaturgy, I got sets, props, lighting, theater history, like all, all of the things. And I just got like a tiny little taste and enough to be like, oh, I love that. Or, nah, that's not really for me. But then I felt at the end, though I felt really like well-rounded and well-educated and like I grew a lot as a person, I just felt like, gee, don't really feel like I have the practical skills to confidently go into this industry and be like, I'm a professional, pay me money to do this. Like, I just didn't feel like I had that, that level mm. of expertise in any one area. And it was good because it helped me discover that acting and, and directing to some degree and playwriting, but acting was the direction I wanted to go. And it, it almost like taught me enough to tell me that I don't actually know anything about it. Like mm -hmm. it gave me enough of a foundation to be like, okay, this is worth doing and I like doing it, but I just, I like wanted to deepen my understanding of what it was and how to do it and all of that. Yeah. You know, it's funny because back when I was trying to decide what school to go to, I, I auditioned at both Ryerson and George Brown mm -hmm. and I was trying to figure out which one to go to. And I, I eventually got into both and it was when I found out that, first of all, George Brown had a business of acting course and Ryerson didn't, and also that all of pretty much all of the teachers were full time actors, part time teachers, mm -hmm. that was a big draw for me. Whereas at Ryerson, it was it was all full time teachers, mm -hmm. um, but it was definitely those were the things that made me want it because I felt like that was the program that was going to prepare me for a career in the theater um, and. Uh, Ryerson would prepare would prepare to me to be an actor, but not really teach me about what the industry was like. Mm -hmm. Well, I just like I grew up in a small town, and then going to Guelph was a huge transition mm -hmm. for me. And then I still thought, I was like, "Wow, Guelph! I'm I'm a city person now." But then, <laughs> but then I moved to Toronto. I was like, "Oh my god! I don't know anything about living in a city." So I feel like even that was invaluable to me just to like mm. growing as a person figuring out how to how to be like that next level of independence and like obviously Toronto is where the work is so yeah it just felt like a really nice like step to get me to where I wanted to go that like mm -hmm. wasn't so scary and horrifying as just being like now do it <laughs> that's that's absolutely true and it allowed you to get acclimated a bit to the city mm -hmm. uh, without having to try to also try to have an acting career in it. Yeah. Yeah. My first day I, um, when I was in residence, I had a not theater roommate. Um, it's a lovely, lovely person. And she's from Pickering. So like she knows what Toronto is about. And she literally had to show me how to get on a streetcar. Cause I didn't know 
like the chain. I was like, how do you pay? Like, uh, what, do they stop? Do you have to wave them down? Like, I didn't know how any of it worked. So she hmm. like on the first day, she's like, Cassie, let's go to the mall together. And like, I'll, I'll show you how it works. So, how did, okay, how did she sense that you didn't know this stuff? Because it sounds like like somebody was was really intuitive. It's unless you were like out there being like, I don't know how anything works. I I mean, I was pretty honest about my country bumpkin heritage. I would say, like when we were doing the classic, like let's get to know each other thing. Like I was pretty like pretty honest, but I feel like she could just sense the terror mm-hmm. that was surrounding me about like because I, I you know what it was. I had to go get my movement clothes. I had to go get the all black for Leslie's movement class. And I was like, oh no, I have to get to the mall. How do I get to the mall? And I was gonna like take a taxi. She's like, Cassie, no, do not take a taxi to the Eaton Center, like, let's go. (laughs) So yeah, I think she just sensed the like, Mm. the fear of that prospect. Now you met your partner uh, at at Guelph. Mm -hmm. Um, Your partner is a, was in theater as well? Uh, No, Ryan was in the music department actually, yeah. And so you, when you decided to go in and, and, and continue studying at George Brown, mm-hmm. did Ryan, Ryan stayed, did not come to Toronto or so he, what happened? He had one year left of Guelph to finish when I was off to Toronto. So he stayed in Guelph for that year. And then for the next two years I was at George Brown, he was in Burlington with his family. Mm-hmm. And right now I, the, the closet I'm in right now that's in Burlington and then actually in the very near future we are going to be heading back to Toronto together so we're on on the prowl for an apartment right now actually yeah Yeah. excellent Mm -hmm. um now one of the things that I like to talk about is what the what whatever it is that that inspired somebody or drew someone to the theater now you sort of allude to the fact that your parents were in the theater world so um, is that what made you want to be part of it? Did they warn you away from it? Tell me what's, <laughs> what is your origin story? Oh, geez. Yeah. I had no hope of avoiding the arts. I had no hope of that. I, um, my mom actually was my high school drama teacher as well. So she was a professional actor for a few years. My dad was a technician in Toronto for a few years, and then they both kind of moved on to different things, but my mom became a drama teacher. So I was in my first play, like before I could speak mm-hmm. essentially. So yeah, no, there was, there was no chance that I would ever be in anything else. And the, and they, they were never like unrealistic about it with me. They never said, Oh, you're a star. You'll do so well. Like they were always like, it's really hard. And like, you'll have to work really hard. But I always felt that they fully supported me and that they like, that they believe that I could do it too. Yeah. Like I never felt like there was, there, there was no Cassie be a doctor, be an engineer. Like that was okay. not in the yeah, card. Yeah. Hmm. Um, now one of the things that I, I find really interesting is, you know, 2020 was a rough year for the theater and 2021 mm-hmm. seems to also be shaping up to be a rough year for the theater. Mm-hmm. You actually did something similar to me, and that is uh, started creating audio dramas. Mm-hmm. Now, yours, I did a Christmas thing, um, but you've been doing uh, uh, audio dramas in the horror genre. Yes. So I might nerd out a little, so let's let's be prepared for that. But I'm like, ready. in terms of, of of putting that together, how did you first decide? that audio was going to be where you went? Yeah. So we, 
myself and then three other people who are like my peers in theater, um, we we did what most people do. We're like, you know what? We should make a theater company because we just like it's that classic like don't wait for the phone to ring you have to do your own work we're like yeah 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 yeah. okay okay so we decided we're like all right we're gonna make a theater company we're gonna feature emerging artists basically we just want to do cool shit that was it but then pandemic so all of our like we had our first season planned out we were so excited we had all these plans and then just like totally like rug yanked out from under us kind of thing so at first we were like well that's it that's that that's all there is to it and then actually um Duncan who's one of the members of my company and we also fun fact we went to Guelph together and then we also mm. both went to George Brown together oh. so we've been in post-secondary together <laughs> for many years um but he was like radio play and I was like yeah yeah, for sure. And we're really lucky because my partner, Ryan, because he's a musician and a composer, he has all the equipment that we could possibly want. He's got the great microphones, the stands, the the pop filters, all of that stuff. The, the software and the editing mm. know-how, too. Mm. He knows how to do all of that. He is our wizard of tech. So we were like, yeah, okay, like, that's the way that we can do it. Mm. And we this was right around August when we were like, okay this is something we can make happen. And we were like, all right, August, that's just enough time that we can like get something going by Halloween, very spooky, like it'll be great. It'll be super fun. But we had this really ambitious plan where we release like one a week and we we're like, oh, we'll do all these things. And then we sat down to talk to Ryan about it. And we're like, Ryan, what do you think? And he was like, love it. Not once a week though <laughs> <laughs> he was the one who would have to do all the editing and all the sound effects and all that and we were like oh yeah yeah for sure totally totally so that's we kind of settled on a bi-monthly release schedule but yeah mm -hmm. we're just we've been having a lot of fun like exploring like different types of horror mm -hmm. and like different combinations of people and it's it's been a really cool unexpectedly joyful part of this awful time mm. um what is something that you did not expect about doing audio drama that surprised you? Mm. Something I did not expect. Well, I guess from, from, a, from a writer's point of view, I primarily have written for theater, which obviously can be very, very visual. Um, so, so much of how I craft a story is based around visuals and based around like what cool stuff can we do with our bodies and how can we like have something like like really impactful like bodies in space all that stuff so I guess with horror especially we've often <clears throat> butt up against like how do we create horror when you can't you can't see the monster you can't see the danger and like how can you create action without being like and then he had a knife like how like how do you how do you get that like skin crawling horror so I would say like creating a story without the visual aspect has just been the, the most difficult thing but also mm. the coolest thing too one of the things that I found when I first was putting together my six part Christmas drama and they were only like 10 minute, like 10 minute bits that I could get it all out in one thing. But at one point I was like, I'm going to create 
a video aspect to tell the story as well. I was going to do like put together pictures and motion graphics and things like that. And I could have, cause I gave myself enough time. But once I listened to the audio, I suddenly realized that if I added imagery, I would be um, taking away from the visual aspect of the audio. Mm-hmm. Because in some ways, audio is a visual drama. You can make people imagine things without having to put it on, on the screen. So uh, in some ways, removing the visuals freed mm-hmm. up the imagination of, of the people to be able to, to, to figure stuff out. But again, it's like it's still a different way of telling a story because you have to have you have to know how much how much do you have to literally tell? How much do mm-hmm. you have to uh, just have the right sound effect and, 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 and what can you do mm-hmm. to, to make the story clear? Um, how do you go about making sure that you've got enough, say, of a description or or just enough to 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 make the, the your audience imaginarily see uh, what you're trying to to have happen without overdoing it. Mm-hmm. Well, when we first approached this, we wanted to not have it narrated. We wanted to see can we just have people doing their thing and not get into the she walks across the hall and opens the door like that kind of thing. We wanted to see like how can we how can we convey action without saying the action? Mm. Um, I think a a big part of it that's really helpful is Ryan is amazing at creating sound effects and like atmosphere and all of that kind of stuff. So that's very helpful just purely technically from storytelling. Like if we want to say they open the door, he just puts in a E as they open the door. Um, But it's been tricky. And I, and I think sometimes like, um, Duncan and I usually write the episodes together. Like one of us will write, one of us will edit, or we'll write it collaboratively. So I think also having that second set of eyes that's mm. not in your brain. Like I think often when you're writing, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the other person reads it and they're like, what are you, what is this, mm. what's happening? So I think also having that multi-step process where it passes through multiple creative brains, multiple sets of people, that really helps clarify what's what's happening and what's the action of it. But Mm. we've been experimenting actually with our most recent episode of having the narrator be a character Mm. as as well. So that's been kind of fun to add that level in, but yeah, it's, it's been a huge learning experience just like what works and what doesn't and all that stuff. I mean, the way that you describe what you're doing is pretty ambitious. And, and I have to say that, that, that creating a new drama. Is it an hour long? How long is each one? Um, it varies. Most of them are around, I would say, like 20, 25 mm-hmm. minutes-ish per episode. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's to say that you're going to create one of those every two months, even every two months, not regardless of weekly. That's still quite ambitious because you have to write it, record it, score it, put sound effects in, and then make sure that everything works together. Like, that's a big job. Um now, you're, are you learning anything about the editing or is that all like that's a Ryan thing and you're like, <laughs> you don't touch it? Um, I would say I'm a creative consultant, but that is as far as my editing mm. expertise would go. Um, I mostly, because I am also 
in the before time, I would do um, indie producing as well. So I am working on like the marketing and the promotion and like that kind of stuff. Um, and that's definitely where my one of my passions lies is I love like telling the telling the promotional story as dumb as that sounds. I love getting it out there. So not really, but sometimes I get to help Ryan make the sound effects, which mm. is a lot of fun. Can I say that 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 being interested in all of that stuff, there's there, none of that is dumb or silly because that's super valuable. The number of times that that um you know uh, artists are trying to work on something and they hate the marketing part or it's an afterthought or things mm -hmm. like that, like that's it is a skill and it's an important skill, so it's really important to be thinking of. Um, and you know, doing a podcast, I know that a lot of shows wait far too late to uh, approach the media and mm -hmm. things like that, especially around fringe and things like that. But you know, it's 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 an important skill to have. So, uh, how did you discover that that's something that you enjoyed? Mm. So, I would describe myself as I I can't say no to things. And I love to have my fingers in a thousand different pots, basically. That's how I discovered it. Um, I did a little bit of it in university with the different like student festivals we had. Um, but what really, really sparked it was I did an indie producer co-op with Theater by the Bay mm -hmm. um, right after I graduated George Brown. And that just like the possibilities of indie producing was just like, because that just really like gave me the tools, gave me the know-how, but also gave me the confidence that like, yes, I can actually just put a show on if I want to. And like, there, there are many easy concrete steps that you can do to just do it. Whereas I feel, while George Brown is awesome at teaching you the acting and how to market yourself as an actor, they're like, figure it out when it's time to put mm. on your own, um, your own production. So that was like, definitely the center for me and teaching me how how to how to put on a show from the idea all the way to butts in your seats kind of thing so I just discovered hey I really like this mm. I really enjoy it I think I'm good at it it's and and it's a skill that not a lot of my friends had so when we mm. wanted to put on our own shows they were like can you do it it's like yeah I can do it I feel like it's still too bad that theater schools and George Brown I don't think it's alone in this have not quite embraced the reality of the industry that um, most of us are going to be self-producing. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of us are not going to have uh, that theater career that they're teaching us that we're going to have, which is, you know, you go to the audition, you get the job and so on and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but that we're going to be doing indie stuff. We're going to be self-producing and not giving us the tools to do that or not, not having a course that really takes care of that or, or, or gives you those foundations, mm -hmm. uh, which is really too bad. Well, also too, I, I feel like definitely the market is very saturated with 20 something white women. Right. And, and the parts are so sparse for mm. 20, the good parts are so sparse for a lot of people. Um, so I just feel the, the benefit of self-producing and indie producing is you just get to write the parts that you want to be in, which, and you get to put that on and like you get the say in how you present yourself. Because I found 
before the pandemic, these roles that I was like trying to latch onto is like, Amy is insecure. Amy is this person's girlfriend. (laughs) Amy is, and I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, sure, sometimes fine, but, but like, where, where are those good roles? And like, as, as a white person too, there's even more roles available to me than any people Mm -hmm. in marginalized communities as well. So I just think like what a gift it is to be able to create your own stuff. It is. And also it's such a, it gives you such a a foundation and an understanding of, of the way that the moving pieces of all of it, like, Mm -hmm. like, you know, instead of resenting when the marketing department says you have a photo shoot at this time, be there in your costume, this sort of thing. And you're going to do that between rehearsal moments or whatever. You understand the necessity of it in a way that Mm -hmm. somebody who hasn't, um, who hasn't self-produced, or hasn't had to promote their own stuff really does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, one of the things now, in terms of the difference between um, creating theater or creating theater and promoting it, and creating an audio drama and promoting it, is there is there a, a particular difference in the promotion of those that you've seen? Yeah, for sure. Well, I obviously with the audio drama. Um, it's super easy to take finished clips of that and put that online. Whereas with theater, it can be so much more nebulous to like get in the rehearsal hall and film it and get good lighting. And like the actors are so busy and it's so difficult to get good footage of theater. I feel, especially if you're trying to quietly like not disturb people and just get a teeny bit of footage for advertising. And, and usually it's much more of a condensed period and, but also what's great about marketing for theater is is the bodies, is all of the actors, is all of the people in the space. Like that is really exciting. So it's definitely different types of content for sure. Um, but it's been really fun with the audio drama, getting to pick out little snippets that are kind of almost little teasers and putting those up. Um, but definitely the visuals are a little tricky with the audio drama. Um, this episode, this most recent one, actually, we ended up commissioning one of my good friends, Kat, who is an illustrator, and we got her to like do a, a nice little cover art for us. So it's it's been fun experimenting like, well, what what is effective and what mm. does grab people? And then what's a waste of time and what's a waste of money and that balance there. One of the things that I really enjoyed was the fact that, you know, you've got you've got so many layers of audio mm-hmm. that when it comes to putting together a trailer for an audio drama, it can be, there's so much, there's kind of more possibilities because you have the audio that you can then splice up in another way and add your different sound effects. You have so much more freedom mm-hmm. as you're assembling the trailer apart from the, uh, the audio, the, the, the actual drama itself. Um, there's a lot of freedom there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And also I, I, I feel like, especially with horror too, it's given us a lot of options that would not necessarily be available to us in theater, which is fun as well. Um, obviously there are creative ways you can make monsters and make demons, but it, it's kind of fun just experimenting with the technology that is available. Like all of the, all of the plugins and all of the mm-hmm. like layering and filters. Like we have this one called the dehumanizer, which we got to use in the most recent episode, um, which is a lot of fun. And just like, 
as an actor too, um, I got to voice the monster in this episode and it was so much fun being like, wait, that's me. That's my voice. <laughs> like it was, it was really cool. And, and we probably wouldn't have a 12 foot tall demon on stage. And like, how would we do that? Maybe puppetry, maybe, but like it just, I really feel audio just, it has its, its limitations, but also like the possibilities are cool. Yeah, absolutely. Because you don't have the, you know, just like with a movie that costs a 12 foot demon costs money. 12 foot demon costs a different kind of money in live theater, but in audio, it's a filter. (laughs) <laughs> it is yeah it, it is and also being being an indie theater company and pretty low bud like a lot of the stuff that would just not even be an option for us is totally an option with audio mm. which is really fun to explore as well you know as far as as theater goes i find i have been thinking for a while that there there isn't enough of of there isn't enough genre in our theaters there's we have classical and we have kitchen dramas and we have living room dramas, but we don't have a lot of sci-fi and horror in our theater. Um, and sometimes I wonder why we shy away from, from that. Is it, I wonder, is it because it doesn't seem important enough and our theater is supposed to be quote unquote important? Mm-hmm. Or is it that, you know, we don't think that we can because we don't have the budget. And I, I just, I wonder about, about that is is genre something that pandemic over you would consider continue to pursue having explored horror yeah i i definitely think so and i think often people are are worried about being palatable easily digestible like i i can only think of a handful of shows that i've seen recently that like actually even really like went went to that level went to like risked being unpalatable and not being oh that was nice wasn't it Mm. like so yeah I definitely think it's definitely something interesting because it's not what we see all the time and and you know you know it's going to be good when you roll up to the theater and the curtains open and the couch is in the middle of the stage (sighs) you're like oh there we go yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of tired of the couch. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting to me because I think sometimes we get caught up in, I could never do, I, like, I, I can't do a 12-foot tall demon on stage. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, a theater audience is so much more forgiving and more prepared to suspend their disbelief mm-hmm. in a theater than than they would be i did uh, a play years ago where we had a chase on top of uh, a train oh and the way that we did that was we had a rectangle of light on the stage and um we pretended to run on it and jumped across in unison as though we were changing cars and occasionally one of our castmates would run out with a branch and sort of like run by and, and hit us with it and it seems so simple and so stupid and yet it's one of the most effective effects i've ever been i've ever participated in in theater because it the audience was just ready to go with it as ridiculous Mm -hmm. as it was Mm -hmm. yeah i think like in this day and age like if you're gonna put something on like what why not why not try 
going for the high camp or the high, mm. like the high concept stuff. Well, actually, before the pandemic, um, I had a show ready to go to the Guelph Fringe. Um, it was also kind of horror It was the kind of mix of like the characters believe they are in a truly horrific situation, but it's kind of silly and it's kind of funny to the audience. So so I was already kind of leaning in this, like what, what can we do to create a, hor- a horror atmosphere with live theater? But then pandemic, mm-hmm. oh, well, no dice. But I definitely think it would be something fun to continue to explore. I'm not a horror movie person though, which is which is the interesting part of this for me. Like I would never call myself a horror buff or a horror fan, but I just think being a part of the creative team on horror is so fun because there's that extra layer of how can we make it good? How can we make mm. the audience believe it? But how can we scare people? That's cool too. Yeah, I would. I, I'm certainly not a horror person. I do not enjoy uh, uh, watching horror movies. Um, I'm I'm too chicken shit for that kind of stuff. Me too. But but the idea of creating something that that, that could scare people or, or 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 that that's that's so exciting to be a part of. It's like I wouldn't I wouldn't watch this in a movie, but to make it that's exciting. Mm-hmm. I just feel like it's another element to use that classic theater school world word of visceral. It's just mm. another visceral element that is really fun to play with, I think. I, I was actually, um, in September, I was in a student film that was actually really well done. It was a horror film. And that was my first foray into acting in the horror realm. And it was so funny because we had these like really like gory looking ghost women and they were terrifying, but I was having breakfast with them every morning at the table. So <laughs> like in their full, like, like oozing skin and the contacts and everything. And, and it was just such an interesting perspective to see like, that is what the audience sees, but then, mm-hmm. oh, that, that's my friend and we're going to go get coffee after this. And it, it's just, that's a whole other world that I thought I was like, it's not for me. I don't like that spooky stuff, but I do apparently. I do think it's very different to be to be in the spooky stuff than to watch the spooky stuff. Because when you're in it, you're like, that heart was jello, yeah. you know, or whatever. Yeah. You're like, that was, there was just foam, you know, because you see it. But when it's on screen, suddenly it's like, now that's gross. Mm-hmm. But, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, because you were part of the creation of it, you, you're watching it in a different way. And, and it's not frightening to you because you're like, that's Tom yeah. in the makeup, you know? Yeah. There was actually this scene that I loved in that short film that was such a blast to shoot. It was basically the moment of the demonic possession for the main character and and things were flying around the house and we decided to go fully practical with that thing so all of the other actors and crew were like couched crouched around all of the furniture and we all had things to shake and to throw and to there was a spinning wheel that I got to spin and and the audience just sees this like horrible demonic thing she's reading from a satanic book and then the house explodes but just getting that peek behind the curtain of okay and now I throw the tarot cards now I spin the wheel it was just like such a blast to film and to get to see how that worked it just Mm -hmm. makes me really curious how how other productions create horror and how other productions like 
can create that atmosphere and how do they do it? That's so cool. Yeah, I think there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of possibility in in the world of genre, mm-hmm. as far as horror, even science fiction goes. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think that you know a lot of people, like I said, they shy away from it because they're like, "Oh, we're low budge," but you know, sometimes it's more scary not to see the monster, and sometimes it's you know more. There's more wonder in something that's that that feel that that engages the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe people are hesitant because there's so much bad sci-fi from the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s or there's so much bad horror where oh well you can tell that's spaghetti that's not their intestines like <laughs> that kind of thing but I, I feel like there's no reason to be afraid of it because at the end of the day you're still a theater artist you know yeah. what is good work and you you know you won't for the most part, you know, you're not going to put on bad work because you, mm-hmm. you surround yourself with people whose opinion you trust, who are professionals, who are good at what they do. So I, I would love to embrace the going big and not even just with money. Like, I think we can trust the audience to come along with us if we do it sincerely and not self-consciously. Like, we should just go for it. Yeah, I 100% think that a theater audience will buy sci-fi and horror even if it's in a in a in just a black box mm-hmm. totally if you say the monster is coming through that door and they'll look at the door even though they know there's no monster like in theater they're just ready to go in a way that in tv and film if this if the effects are bad they're gonna roll their eyes and go that's spaghetti or yeah. whatever but Absolutely. in in theater they will buy that spaghetti as intestines in a way that they won't in film. Absolutely. And I, I also love the agency that comes with horror and sci-fi because there's such a clear issue or villain or problem that the characters have to solve. And all, like, obviously, I love myself, an alien and a Sigourney Weaver and like that. I love the, oh yeah. man, I like, give me a great sci-fi heroine. Mm. Or a great horror heroine any day. like, ugh. But the agency that comes and the immediacy of the world is going to explode. There's something we have to do about it. Or the monster is outside the door. What are we going to do about it? That I just feel like there's such an urgency that comes with mm-hmm. that kind of genre too, which is super fun. Yeah. Now, just as we're starting to draw to a close, one of the things that I've been asking everybody in these pandemic times Mm -hmm. is about what's been giving them joy. I feel like it's really important and it is so hard to hold on to joy in some cases in these times. So what's been giving you joy lately? Great question. A lot, a lot of things, actually, a lot of things. Um, there's something that one of my friends said to me probably, I want to say maybe four months ago when I was, I was hitting that low where the hopeful we're all in this together was over. There was no end in sight. And, and I was really just like, man, I miss my family. I miss my friends. I'm in a really crowded house. I miss like going to coffee shops and I miss my whole career of theater. I miss all of that. And she said to me, there's no gold medal for handling the pandemic the best. Mm. And, and I've been really hanging on to that. And it's like, it's okay to have those really awful, awful, awful shitty days. But I think knowing that, yeah, this is okay. 
Everyone's having awful shitty days. It actually makes them hurt less and it makes the joyful days better because you're not so worried about, oh, is this joy going to last? Is this going to last? But like purely like the things I'm doing, um, I am playing Animal Crossing. I just got that uh, recently. Are you just starting on the Animal Crossing train? I am. I am yeah. so jealous of you. I'm so <laughs> jealous of you. Because I got on the on the Animal Crossing train in March. Oh, yeah. And it was so the right thing for a pandemic. Because yes. it was so soothing. Yes. It was just so peaceful. That's actually why I picked it up. Because my, my partner, Ryan, had it for since March when it came out and I was just feeling like the crushing weight of my too many jobs and too many things happening and I I I just could not relax and I was just feeling so overwhelmed and I thought you know what maybe I'll maybe I'll give this fun little wacky game Mm -hmm. a try and and Mm -hmm. and honestly it's such a fun guilt-free way to just relax Mm -hmm. so and I, I love gaming so that's always been a nice a nice constant throughout this time. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I would say before the pandemic, I was kind of careening towards some burnout because again, I can't say no to things. Mm. I'm so ah. afraid of missing out on things. I can't say no. So I was I was just like going into Toronto all the time, staying up so late, getting up so early. So actually the pandemic made me slow down and I and in a weird way I'm really grateful for that too. Here's an interesting question. Have do you think that this pandemic has taught you to say no to things? <laughs> I'd like to think so. I mean, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what this has done. Um, I think a big part of it was so I I'm living in Burlington, and I think I was so afraid that I would miss out because I wasn't in the city. I was so afraid people wouldn't ask me to do things or wouldn't ask me to come to things mm. because I was too far away that I was I was determined. I was like, I will be available for everything. And, and it was totally the wrong way to look at it. But yeah, I think I think so. I think I think this has taught a lot of people that prioritizing mental health and your own well being is worth it. And like the stuff will be there when you're ready. And there's no point in piling yourself. Like I, I'm, I'm happy to say I will be quitting one of my jobs in a week because I've decided. Congratulations. Enough enough. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So I, yeah, I would say so. I would say this, this year has taught me you can't do everything, even if you really want to. And, and you do things better if you rest and you bring more to the table if you rest than if you're constantly mm. like must go to this must see that must be a part of this it's not worth it hmm. no um and just in closing uh when is the next episode of the of the horror podcast available yeah so the next episode it's called dead and breakfast and it will be coming out the end of february so february 28th um right now we are launching to google podcasts and Apple Podcasts and Podbean. And then, yeah, we're, we're kind of doing every two months after that. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Cassie, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak to you today. <laughs>